afternoon, Crossroads. I hope everyone is doing well. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, we have been looking at the book of Job. Before that, we were looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, these are all books that are part of the Old Testament, a section of the Old Testament that we call wisdom literature. And I think they're really important books for us at this cultural moment, this time that we're in in our city. In the book of Job, in particular, if you've been here the past few weeks, is about suffering. And it's not a topic that is like light and fun and summer movie-going Barbie pink. That's not the book of Job. It's dark and it's sad and it's troubling to read, but I think it's important. Because whether you're in a moment of suffering right now, or you just came out of a moment of suffering, or perhaps you might be going into a season of suffering as followers of Jesus, we have to be equipped. And so if you haven't been here for the past few weeks, let me update you on what is going on in the book of Job. So the main character of the book of Job is a guy named Job, and by all measurements, he is a great guy, a great person of faith, a great family man, a great businessman, a great person in his community. Everybody loved Job. You would have loved, loved Job if he lived in Brooklyn right now. And then one day, Job's life changed like that. In a moment, his life got turned upside down. He lost everything. He lost his possessions. He lost his family. He lost his good health, and he found himself in an intense season of suffering. And as we read the book of Job, these questions come to the forefront. The first question is, God, why? God, I don't understand this. Job's a pretty good dude. He was living a pretty good life. Job loved you. Why all the suffering? But very quickly, we move past the why questions into the how questions. And we say, how is Job going to get through this? How is he going to make it? Which leads to the next part of the book where we... Something beeping? Is that in my head? <laughs> beep, beep. Okay. Um, what are we talking about? Okay. Um... Oh, yes. So Job is suffering, and his three friends step on the scene. It's like the three stooges of the Old Testament. And they come on the scene, and their goal is to comfort Job, and they fail miserably. Instead of being a comfort to Job, Job's three friends end up being a burden to Job. They just pile on to the suffering. And most of the book of Job is Job and his friends going back and forth and Job not being comforted by their attempts. And all through, throughout these conversations, God is mostly silent until the point of the book we get to today. At the end of the book of Job, God comes on the scene, and God has a word. God has a message. God has something he wants to say to Job and to us. And it might surprise us. Certainly not what Job was expecting, not what Job's friends was expecting, and probably not what we would expect if we were in a season of suffering. So go to chapter 38 of Job, and that's where we're going to start. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for for joy. Skip to verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Go with me to chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will answer you and make it known to, and make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Now, at first glance, God's speech to Job seems very off topic, even a bit random. Throughout the book of Job, God, um, excuse me, throughout the book of Job, Job wants God to show up and give him an explanation. God? Why the suffering? Job's friends want God to show up on the scene and give Job condemnation, to show Job where he went wrong. But when God actually shows up at the end of the book, he doesn't give an explanation for the suffering. He doesn't give Job condemnation for anything that he does. In fact, he does something very unexpected. God gives a long poetic discourse on the wonders of the universe. In fact, this is the longest speech that God gives in the entire Bible apart from the giving of the law. And it just seems strange to us. Job is in this moment of intense suffering. I mean, he's scratching the boils off his skin. He's lost his children, his job, his resources, his house, everything. And then God comes on the scene, and it's like he shows up with a nature documentary. Here are some examples. He says, Job, what about the stars? See those? Do you recognize these? That's the constellation Orion. You know about it? How about the hundred other billion other stars in our galaxy? Do you know the stars that are in the two trillion other galaxies than our own galaxy? Job, do you know them? Job, do you know I numbered the stars and I call them all by name? Okay, fine. Job, how about the lightning? Tell me about its electromagnetic charge. 
Job, does the lightning report to you? Because Job, let me tell you, I command the lightning. Okay, fine. Lightning's kind of big. Stars, huge. How about the mountain goat, Job? Do you know about the mountain goat? Job 39, one through four. This is, I'm not making this up. Surely you know, Job, about the breeding patterns of the mountain goat. You get the ins and outs of the 180-day gestation period for a baby goat. Right, Job? No? How about the eagle? Job 39, 27 through 30. Can you tell me about the aerodynamics of the way the eagle flies? Can you tell me about how eagles build their nests on high? Surely, Job, you know about the amazing eyesight of the eagles, right? And he goes on and on and on. This is just a sample. He talks about the foundation of the earth, the gates of death, the downpouring of the rain, the hunting of lions, the wandering of wild donkeys, the manes of horses, the soaring of hawks, the feeding of ravens, and more. And we think, what? Like, okay, God, is now really the right time for a National Geographic documentary? Can't you see that this guy is suffering? And to make it all the more confusing, verse 3, God starts his speech by saying, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. In Hebrew, this is literally gird up your loins. Like, prepare yourself for battle, Job. And it just, we read it now and we think, it just feels like God is flexing on Job. Like, Job, let me show you how strong I am, how big I am, and how small you are. It's like Shaquille O'Neal dunking on a kindergartner. But is that what God is doing here? I don't think so. Last year, I got a new thermostat for our apartment. And it was one of those smart Google thermostats. And when you uh, install the thermostat, the first thing it has to do is recalibrate. You put the thermostat in a new environment, and it has to recalibrate to the new temperature. And this is exactly what is happening with Job at the end of the book. God has brought him into a new reality, a new vision of God, and Job has to adjust and so what we see at, in, this, in these speeches is that God wants Job, not, he's not pushing Job down. No, he's just helping Job recalibrate to the reality of who he really is. And in light of who God really is, Job is going to adjust the way that he lives. So very simply this afternoon, I want to look at two points. How do we recalibrate and have a right view of God? And how do we recalibrate and have a right response to God? First, we see a right view of God. God is revealing himself to Job in a new way. God is wanting to expand, God is wanting to expand Job's vision of who he is. And this is the most important moment in Job's life. And when we step back and we experience God, it will be the most important moment of our lives. These moments that we all have, where we actually get a, uh, an experience of who God is that shakes us to the core, 
where we get a view of God and we say, okay, God, I, I'd like you to be this way. I imagine you to be this way. I prefer that you're that way. And God's like, okay, but let me show you who I really am. Not who you imagine me to be, not who you'd like me to be, but who I really am. And we see a tension in this passage. God, how does God reveal himself to Job? In a storm. He thunders to Job from a mighty wind. It's, it's, it's an overwhelming and powerful picture of God. But he also addresses Job as Yahweh. It's the personal, relational, covenantal name of God. And he, the words that he speaks to Job, actually when we look closely, are words of tenderness and words of grace. So we have this all-powerful God who's actually stooping down to meet with one suffering man. Do you see the tension? Job has to recalibrate, and we need to recalibrate too. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's that famous story where you have the Pevensey children. They find themselves in Narnia. Narnia is ruled by Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure. He's the king of Narnia. He is in charge. He rules and reigns in Narnia. But Aslan's a lion, and the children don't know it yet until they talk to Mr. Beaver, who was quite clever. And here's how the conversation goes. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said the beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the tension we see in Job. When we come face to face with who God really is, he's going to blow our categories that we have for him. He's going to blow apart the boxes that we try to put him in. And we do that, don't we? Right? We, we like God to be safe and neat and clean and tidy and fit into the spaces that I want God to fit into. But when we meet God, he destroys them all. I remember when I was a brand, brand new Christian and I was listening to the radio. I was in my parents, where my parents in my hometown. And I was driving around and listening to the Christian radio station. And I the tagline of the Christian radio station was safe for the whole family. And I was driving around, I was like, safe for the whole family. And I was a brand new believer and I was like, huh. I've been like reading the Bible and like, it doesn't feel safe. Like, I know he's good, but this God doesn't fit into our neat categories. He's the God of the universe who made the foundations of the earth. And Job is just coming to grips with this. And we see first a tension in the passage where Job is getting a right view of God's perfect power. And no doubt, God is showing Job his power. The scope of his knowledge and strength is beyond what any of us can imagine. Last week, my two oldest sons came back from camp, and they came back singing the song, Our God is an Awesome God. <clears throat> you remember the song from the late 80s? Our God is an awesome God, he reigns. 
from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And they came back singing that song, and I hadn't heard that song in forever, so I've been humming it and singing it in my heart. Our God is an awesome God. And been thinking like, okay, what does that even mean? Because we throw the word awesome around lightly in our culture. Luigi's Pizza on 5th is awesome. The Ninja Turtle movie is awesome. Lionel Messi is awesome. The pundits tell us that the New York Jets maybe, just maybe, are going to be awesome. And there's nothing wrong with us using this language. This is the way our culture does it. But when we talk about God being awesome, we are talking about something categorically different. God is a different level of awe-inspiring. We see this in the book of Job. Our God is a lay the foundation of the earth, design the constellations, command the thunder type of awesome. And then we zoom out in the rest of the scriptures and we see that our God is a create the universe, part the seas, make the sun stand still type of awesome. Our God is a heal the sick, raise the dead, triumph over evil type of awesome. He's in a different category of awe-inspiring. And then we get this view of God. We actually sang about it today. How great is our God? And we get this vision of him. We're like, our God is powerful and awesome, creator of the universe. And then we begin to understand the gospel more clearly. This same God, the creator God, the reigning God, came to earth, became a man, lived as a carpenter, was crucified on a Roman cross for me? How can it be? And when we begin asking these questions, we find ourselves in very deep waters. We find ourselves swimming in the mystery of God's great love and grace and mercy. We find ourselves swimming in the waters that have made the followers of Jesus fall on their knees for thousands of years in stunned worship and adoration. How can it be the creator God come to earth to die for us? We begin to understand the old hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And we begin to understand the words of the Apostle Paul when he's reflecting on his salvation and he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The king, the creator, God, died for us. And this is the good news of the gospel. That's why we're gathered today. That's what the cross is about. That's what the resurrection is about. That's what the church is about. God came to rescue us. He didn't just remove himself from our suffering. He came near. You see, God spoke from the storm to Job. In the gospel, 
God enters into the storm on our behalf. And then we are left just with stunned wonder. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. But this passage actually holds that intention with something else. Job also gets a right view of God's fatherly care. Because this text doesn't just tell us that God is in charge. This text tells us how God rules. How does God exercise his power in the world? And the answer is that he exercises it in a fatherly way. He's not just flexing and saying, look, I'm in charge. You're not. So stay low. He's doing more than that. He's saying, here is how I rule in the world with fatherly care and kindness to all. Job 38, 7 tells us that God's creation causes the sons of God to erupt with joy. Job 38, 11 says that God treats the great oceans like a parent swaddling their baby giving them boundaries of where they can go and where they can't go. Tells us that he cares for the animals, like a zookeeper. He feeds the ravens. He teaches the lions to hunt, and he cares for the goats. And they're like, what is the point that God is making? He, the point he's making is he cares. He's intentional about the details of his creation, and you know what that means? He is intentional about the details of your life, too. If he knows the gestation period of a baby mountain goat, he sees you and you're suffering. And I know it feels like, um, hello, God, I've been praying and they're like bouncing off the ceiling at me. Where you at, God? I don't see you, God. I don't feel you, God. It's not, I don't get it, God. And he's like, listen, I feed the ravens when they're hungry. I see you. His unmatched power is governed by his fatherly care. He's attentive. So we see his power and we see his love. We see that he is both personal and he is powerful, perfectly tender, at the same time infinite, at the same exact time. And again, when we look at his fatherly care, we have to go back to the cross where the justice of God, the holiness of God, and the love and the mercy and the grace of God collide. God, with, God is perfectly holy at the cross, and God is perfectly just at the cross, and at the same time, he's perfectly merciful, gracious towards us who come to him. It's absolutely stunning. Which leads us finally to a response. Like what happens when we start to expand our view of God and we begin to recalibrate and we start to see God for who he really is and he's breaking all of our categories. He's more loving than we thought. He's more merciful. He's more gracious. He's more caring. But at the same time, he's more infinite and more powerful than we thought. What do we do? How do we respond? Well, what does Job do? What do we see him doing in this text? First, we see that he embraces a posture of humility. He embraces a posture of humility, and we got, we got to be careful here. He says, the text says that he repented in dust and ashes. 
And that's a bit odd because throughout the book, Job maintains his innocence. And God never actually condemns Job saying his suffering was a result of his sin. So he's not repenting in the sense that we use the word, like I'm repenting for my sin. He's just readjusting. He's recalibrating. He's saying, I'm turning away from a view of God that was too small. God, I thought I understood. I clearly did not. The text says that he had heard about God. It's like many of us. He had heard about God, but now he had experienced God. And it changed everything. He's turning from his attempts to justify himself. He's turning from his need to have an explanation for everything. For God to be at his beck and call. He's turning away from trying to control and manipulate God. He's saying, God, I'm going to let you be God. And I'm not. That's what humility is for us. Just a posture of saying, I'm done playing God. I'm done trying to rule the universe. I've been trying to rule it, and I can't do it. God is God. I am not. I was reminded of the words of Elizabeth Elliot, a really well-known, excellent Bible teacher and writer. <clears throat> she wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor. It's about the death of her first husband. Uh, he was murdered on the mission field. So she's someone who is very well acquainted with suffering. And in the preface of her book, she says this, God is God. If he is God, he's worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. See, that's humility. And when we come face to face with God, we have this, uh, this inner uh, peace that comes from us knowing our, our humility of who we are. It doesn't tear us down. It's not like, you're garbage. God is great. That's not what he's saying. No, but I'm letting God be God. I'm not going to be God. But now I have confidence to live my life because I know who God is. Right? I don't got to be God so I can be me. And I can walk in the confidence God has for me because I understand who he is. Right view of God leads to a right view, a right living. Second, we see uh, that he extends a hand of mercy. We didn't actually read this part because I was it was getting long in the passage. But at the end of the book of Job, there's a very interesting scene. God turns his attention from Job and addresses his three friends, his three miserable comforters. And he's like, listen, guys, you really blew it. Like, you seriously messed this whole thing up. You were wrong, Job's friends. And by the way, Job, if you pray for them, I'll forgive them. And you're like, what? And you got to put yourself in Job's shoes. These people have made him miserable. They've added on suffering to his already terrible suffering. They've been a burden to him. Maybe he's like, no, I don't want to forgive them. I want to make them pay. I want them to feel what I have felt. But that's not what Job does. He shows them mercy, and he intercedes on their behalf. And when we really experience God, we will do the same. As God has been to us, we will be to others. It's a principle we see all throughout the scriptures. As God has been kind to us, 
as we experience his kindness, not just think about his kindness, but know his kindness, we'll be kind to others. When we understand and receive the grace that he has shown us and we just stand in awe and we feel his grace wash over us, we will be gracious to others. As we understand his forgiveness, we will forgive others. And that's the principle of the scriptures. We extend a hand of mercy because we have been given mercy. And so Job, at the end of the story, looks at his three incompetent friends. Extends a hand of mercy because he's seen God. I've seen God. I understand who he is. I'm not going to hold this over you. I got bigger things to enjoy in my life. Finally, we respond by becoming people of prayerful obedience. All throughout the book of Job, there's this major thread where in Job's suffering, he doesn't let it separate him from God. He actually lets the suffering push him to God. And Job is painfully honest in this book. He is angry. He does not understand what is going on. He's frustrated. He is doubting. He's questioning. It doesn't make sense. And instead of taking all of that angst and saying, okay, God, I'm going to deal with this. He takes all of that angst to God in prayer. And that is the type of prayer we, we see in the scripture, this real, raw, honest, the real you coming before the real God. The you with brokenness, the you with suffering, the you with doubts and questions, the you who is mad sometimes at God. And instead of saying, this is going to be a wedge between us, just bring it to him. You don't think he knows? This is the God who laid the foundations of the earth, who taught the lions to hunt, who commands the lightning. You think a few questions are going to bother him? You don't think he sees your heart? So we just come to him and say, God, maybe this is not how I should pray. (laughs) I don't think this is how I got taught to pray in Sunday school. I don't even know if I can pray this way, but this is the real me at this moment. And the real me needs the real God right now. And we, just, we experience him. We bow before him in humble, awe-filled reverence. He's awesome God. But we also, on the other hand, we adore him. Our joyful, loving adoration. We say, I'm going to bow before him. He's holy. But I'm going to love him. He is worthy. And we hold those things in tension as we respond. As reminded of the old hymn again, as we look at what God is, who God is and what he's done, the hymn writer says it well. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a tribute far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Our question for us this afternoon is, is our view of God too small? 
Has something else in your life gotten really big? In your view of God, just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Maybe it's your view of yourself. Maybe it's your view of this relationship you're in. Maybe it's the view of your job. Maybe it's the view of your comfort. Something has gotten big. And you didn't mean to, but all of a sudden your view of God has gotten small. And we just need to step back this morning and to say, like we sang already, how great is our God? Our God is an awesome God and he reigns and we are his children. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We worship you today. God, would you forgive us for having too small of you? We, like Job, want to recalibrate. We want to live our lives in light of who you really are, in all of your power and glory and holiness and mercy and love and grace. We want it all. And God, as we see you and as we experience you, God, I pray that it would change the trajectory of our lives. We would be people of humility and confidence, people of prayerful obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.